the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Plan Your Estate Radio with your host, San Jose Estate Planning Attorney Bob Bergman. Bob's been practicing law for over 30 years and is certified by the State Bar of California as a legal specialist in estate planning trust and probate law. Bob is here to help you set your house in order with valuable insights you can use today to prepare a better tomorrow for your loved ones. And now your host for Plan Your Estate Radio, Attorney Bob Bergman. Good afternoon, Bay Area. This is estate planning attorney Bob Bergman, host of Plan Your Estate Radio, broadcasting from my office in San Jose. I hope you all have had a good week. Uh, I've noticed that the air has cleared up in the last several days here. Uh, I read reports saying we're going to have bad air quality back again this weekend. Let's hope that's not the case. Let's hope that we get some good winds Maybe even that we get some rainfall and get our air cleared out. I know that uh, when the air is very, very bad, I have a hard time with that. It um, makes me cough a lot, sneeze a lot. It doesn't mean that I have COVID-19, but it does mean that I have lungs that are badly affected by bad air. It's one of the reasons, uh, among many, that I don't smoke. And um, so I don't, the air is bad enough without adding extra things into my lungs that don't need to be there. I think last Friday I talked about how it looked like my children might be able to return to school as early as next week. As it turns out, the, the school was not prepared for um, having middle schoolers return as quickly as it appears they may be able to. So they're working on a return plan right now. And we're likely looking at after the 3rd or 4th of October before my children can return to in-class instruction. That was a little disheartening for me because I'm finding that this remote learning process is um, is not working very well for my children. Um, they don't have any enthusiasm for school. They're, um, they miss their friends quite a bit. And uh, they're sad all the time because of this. I, and I'm sure that I'm not the only parent uh, listening to this broadcast that has children in this remote learning um, that, that has... I'm sure I'm not the only parent that has this situation with my children. This is incredibly rough on our kids, uh, not being able to see their friends, not being able to interact with their friends and their teachers, and trying to to do school looking at a little zoom meeting on a chromebook just really doesn't work well for a lot of children one of my daughters is having a horrible time with it my other daughter uh, who is an, an excellent student is losing interest in school so i'm hopeful we'll be able to get back to school uh, as soon as possible so that they can have some semblance of normalcy um, I have noticed 
Uh, I sometimes am uh, overhear breakout meetings in some of the classes where the teachers send groups of students into their own private little Zoom meetings to, quote, discuss the material. I have um, overhearing, I listen, it sounds like the kids either sit around and stare at each other because nobody wants to talk, or else uh, at least one or two of the kids in the breakout meeting decide they're going to use that as an opportunity to goof off, make funny noises, uh, yell into the microphone of their Chromebook, or, or otherwise carry on and not actually do work. Clearly, if there were breakout meetings in a live classroom, where groups of students got together to discuss matters. The teacher could tell if they were goofing off. The teacher can also pass around between the groups, answer questions, and monitor how they're doing. With these Zoom breakout meetings, it's just not working, and um, I don't know that it's a very useful teaching method. Certain kids might get advantage from it. I think a lot of the kids... Uh, The impression I get is a lot of the children in these meetings don't really feel like they're actually going to school because it is through a computer screen. And uh, even some of the teachers have lamented that it seems like the kids are not getting with the program. Um, They're not figuring out what their work is to be done. They're not asking for help from the teachers when they don't know what to, to, to get done. It's a um, very, very bad situation all the way around, and, uh, and I'm hopeful that all of our children will be able to get back to school in person as soon as possible so they can get the education that they deserve and the education that they need. Um, this is a very horrible time in the history of our state and our country, and I'm hoping hoping that things can get sorted out sooner rather than later. Now, my usual format for this show is to uh, come up with a series of questions from around the state of California, uh, and then what I do is I pose the questions, and these are actual questions and situations that I retrieve from a website. Uh, They actually get sent to me throughout the week, and I look at ones that appear to uh, appear to have the um, uh, appear to have a, a greater interest than just the particular person asking the question, and then I try to uh, try to answer that or give my insights as an estate planning attorney. You can also call into the show today if you'd like to ask me a question on the air. It's eight hundred five one six twelve twenty one two two zero eight hundred five one six twelve twenty. Or you can email a question to me at radio at lawbob.com if you'd like me to answer something on the air. But now, uh, moving on, let me start first with a... uh, Okay, let's start first with uh, this one here. Yeah, okay. Intestate probate. Documents Now, intestate means that someone died without a will or last will and testament. It says the documents have been filed with the court. Hearing is set. Some of the beneficiaries are not happy with their percentages. The lawyer is redoing the document to suit them. The way it is now, all the descendants, siblings and parents are dead, never married, no children. Nieces and nephews are inheriting their deceased parent share. That would be the sibling share. 
20% for each deceased sibling of the decedent. So if the deceased sibling had two kids, they would split 20% or 10% each of the total estate. So here, um, the group complaining is a family of five siblings. Each is getting 4%. So they're each getting one-fifth of the 20% for that share, which is 4%. They want all nieces and nephews to get the same share instead. This way, some do not get 20%, some do not get 4%. Everyone's equal. Is it typical for the lawyer to make changes based on complaints by the heirs? Well... Intestate succession is intestate succession, and if it means that, um, if it means that certain people at the same level of relationship to the person who died receive less, then they receive less. Here, you can't just adjust the percentages unless all of the parties affected agree to do that. They could certainly do that by an agreement, but it cannot be forced by those that are getting less of a percentage than other others of their uh, cousins who might be receiving four because there's fewer cousins uh, related to the aunt or uncle that died. So it just doesn't really work that way. Now we're going to be coming up on the the first break of the show today and I want to urge you if you'd like to call in and ask a question of me on the air it's 800-516-1220 you can email your questions to radio at lawbob.com if you'd like to do that instead. But when we get back after the break, I will continue with more questions and comments from around the state of California. So uh, this is attorney Bob Bergman, host of Plan Your State Radio, and I will continue after the break. This is Plan Your Estate Radio with San Jose Estate Planning Attorney Bob Bergman on AM 1220 KDOW. Hi, welcome back. So, I'm going to continue on with some more questions and comments from around the state of California. And if I run out of those, then I will talk about some other uh, topics today. So, here's a question out of Long Beach, California. And the question is, does the ownership interest held by a trust in tenancy in common pass to the beneficiary's estate or heirs upon death? Okay, well, I think what's being asked there is if there is a trust that holds an interest in real estate as a tenant in common with one or more other trusts or people, the question is, does that ownership interest held by the trust pass to the beneficiary of the trust. Yes, that would be the case. Um, because um, if if the, the underlying owner has died, then that means that that tenancy, that tenant in common interest of the trust, still owned by the trust, but it would pass to whoever is the beneficiary of that trust. So that kind of answers that. Now, here's an interesting one. Um, out of San Diego, and the, and the situation is this. The person's having a third-party special needs trust drawn up for an adult daughter who's disabled and on SSI. 
Now, first of all, um, special needs trust, probably better named supplemental needs trust. If it's a third-party trust, that means that someone is taking their property and putting it into a trust for someone else. In this case, like, for example, mother and father setting up a supplemental needs trust for their disabled adult daughter. And a supplemental needs trust is a trust that's designed to supplement any benefits being received by the disabled person, whether it's income, such as supplemental security income, which is SSI, that is a needs-based benefit, meaning you can only receive SSI if you don't have other income and you have a need for some kind of income. Then uh, then there is also uh, perhaps Medi-Cal to provide health insurance or for nursing home care. So a supplemental needs trust is designed to just um, pay property out as someone needs it to supplement whatever monies or benefits they are receiving from the government. And third party means the person didn't use their own property to put into this trust. Now, this person saying the lawyer doing it says the same person can be a successor trustee and a trust protector. Now, successor trustee is the person who takes over and handles a trust after the original trustee or trustees have either resigned, become incapacitated, or died, or any combination of those three things. A trust protector is a person or perhaps a group like a committee of family members that are appointed with the authority to have oversight over the trustee of a trust, which could include the power to remove the trustee, maybe the power to direct investments, the, the power to, to add or subtract beneficiaries of the trust. It depends. The powers can be very broad or very narrow depending on how a trust is drafted. But because the primary purpose of a trust protector is to have oversight to make sure the trustee of the trust is doing a proper job, well, then clearly you should not have the same person acting as a trustee and as a trust protector. Um, in the question I'm reading, the person said it's sort of like having the fox watch the hen house. If you've ever heard that expression, uh, foxes obviously eat hens. You wouldn't put the fox in charge of guarding the hens from the fox. Um, so you can't really have a trust protector that is also a successor trustee of the trust because you cannot fill both roles at the same time without a direct and obvious conflict of interest. Now, a subsequent question in reference to the same situation, um, the question was asked, can a beneficiary of a supplemental needs trust, can their spouse be named as trust protector? Um, well, if the spouse is not the trustee, then the spouse of the disabled beneficiary might actually be a very good trust protector because presumably they're going to look out for the best interests of their disabled spouse who's the beneficiary of that supplemental needs trust. Um, it's not unusual for trust protectors when they are used, and it's not all the time, 
that the trust protector is a family member or group of family members serving as a as a committee or a close family friend or the trust protector might be uh, the person's attorney or accountant or some other professional that um, that kind of knows what's going on and can make sure that that a trustee that's acting badly or poorly can be removed and replaced without going through all of the hassle of uh, having it done through the court system. So yes, um, a beneficiary's spouse can be named as a trust protector. Um, it's if, if there's no one else, that that certainly would be okay. Uh, probably better overall to avoid even the appearance of a conflict if it's not the beneficiary's spouse, but a spouse could be named as trust protector for a disabled spouse. And then a final question in reference to the Supplemental Needs Trust. The question was asked, must a remainder beneficiary be named in a Supplemental Needs Trust? Now, a remainder beneficiary is a beneficiary of a trust that's actually named to receive some property or assets from the trust when the trust is terminated. And it could be terminated by passage of time, if that's what it says. It could be terminated by the death of somebody. In this case, the Supplemental Needs Trust is typically going to be terminated when the beneficiary of that trust dies. So yes, a remainder beneficiary is appropriate actually for any kind of trust. Um, Because if you don't know where the property goes, where it's supposed to go when the trust ends, you've created a hole. I, I literally just went to court on um, on it with a trust where we went to ask the court to decide that the intestate heirs of the person who created the trust, which was two brothers and a nephew, were in fact the beneficiaries of the trust because the trust itself did not name any remainder beneficiaries. So there was a big hole there. We had to go to court to patch up that hole uh, and make a decision. So yes, a trust should always have a remainder beneficiary and uh, and then maybe even a more remote beneficiary as well. So we're coming up now on the second break today of our show. I hope you're enjoying it. I hope you're learning some things. Uh, I'll be coming back after the break. You can call if you'd like, 800 516 or email me at radio at lawbob.com with your questions. But when we come back after the break, I'll continue with more Plan Your State Radio. This is your host, state planning attorney, Bob Bergman. Talk with you after the break. Now, back to Plan Your Estate Radio with attorney Bob Bergman. Welcome back. So I'm going to continue with some more questions and comments from around the state of California. Uh, Looks like I have a fairly thin list of those here. So uh, to finish up the show today as we go forward, I may uh, discuss uh, another topic entirely, uh, maybe as a refresher course for those of you who may have just joined me. Um, I'm probably going to spend some time talking about the types of court petitions that I do because they're getting um, they're getting more and more a part of my practice, and uh, and I find that 
many, many families are facing situations where they have need of, of a service like I offer. So I'll talk about that later on in the show, maybe the final segment of the show. Okay, here's a question out of Roseville. Um, and the question is, does an executor of a revocable trust get paid on the selling price of a property? Well, first, start first by saying I think what they mean is the trustee of a revocable trust. So the executor is the person named in somebody's will and is only appointed by a court if you have to go through the probate process. So they want to know, does, does the trustee get paid on the selling price of a property or the net on the sale of the property? Uh, we're trying to establish the correct amount to calculate the executor's 2% commission. I'm not sure where that number comes from. Maybe it's something that is um, that is in the trust itself, saying the trustee gets a 2% commission on sale. Uh, the, the trustee says it's based off the selling price, not the amount that was netted from the sale of the home. There's a $30,000 difference between the two numbers. Well, you know, clearly the trustee is going to say uh, it's on the selling price. I would say as a general rule, any commission, any estate commission, if you if you were in probate, for example, the executor would get paid a commission based on the market value of the estate without regard for any money owed on the estate but just the raw market value. For example, um, a million-dollar piece of real estate in probate is treated as a million dollars of assets, even if it has a $900,000 loan. So executors in a probate get paid in a similar fashion to real estate agents who sell a house or a building. A real estate agent gets paid, paid on the sale price which is the gross value, the fair market value, they don't get paid on the equity, which is uh, basically the value to the seller, what, what they get out of the sale. It is possible to sell a house and have the realtor make more money from the sale than the seller of the property if there's very little equity in there to begin with. So the answer here is that if it's a commission of some kind, it is typically going to be paid on the sale price of something, not the net. And uh, and that's perfectly appropriate because the liability is the same and the work is the same regardless of how much money is netted out of a property. And a realtor will tell you, you know, I don't care if you're going to get a million dollars from the sale uh, or $100,000 from the sale. My work to sell the property is the same regardless of what you, the seller, actually makes. So I think in the case right here, the trustee is entitled, if it's a 2% commission and it's stated that way, it's based on the sale price, not the amount netted out. And when you stop and think about it, that makes perfect sense. What if there's only $20,000 coming out of the sale of the property? Well, 2% of that is hardly worth getting up in the morning. And, and I don't know uh, I don't know of any real estate agent that would work for even a 6% commission on uh $50,000 coming out of a out of a house, out of a house sale. Um that really wouldn't be all that much. 
So it's typically going to be based on the sale price, not the net. Now here is someone... Ah, okay. Here's someone who is asking whether or not um, anyone knows a financial company that is familiar with trust transactions. Um, yeah, okay. We're, I'm going to pass on this one because because the question is asked in such a way that it's not going to make much sense. Uh, so rather than go that direction, I'm uh, not going to go there. Here's someone who wants to know, how do I protect my assets if my husband has to go into a nursing home? I married again four years ago. We have a prenup agreement. Now my husband has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. I have an IRA and some savings, and we co-own a house. How do I protect these assets if he needs long-term care, such as a nursing home? His savings will be gone quickly. Well, I would tell this person, you need to get together with an elder law attorney right away to determine what things can be done. First thing is, you probably want to have a trust set up and put that house into the trust so that it is not only not a uh, an available asset um, to determine eligibility for um, care or for payment by the state for a nursing home through the Medi-Cal program, but also to make sure that it's not subject to a recovery right after your husband dies in the future if he goes into a nursing home. Uh, there is planning that can be done, but it has to be done now. You don't want to wait until someone's going into a nursing home. So what I would tell this person is you need to consult with an elder law attorney, a good friend of mine here in the San Jose area who's an elder law specialist, is James Berge, B-E-R-G-E. If you've listened to my show in the past, I had him on a a while back. I think it might have been last year, maybe even the year before last, where we talked about conservatorship and the costs and how to avoid it. But um, Jim is a, a really fine elder law attorney. He's the kind of person that could help you here in San Jose. That's James Berge, B-E-R-G-E. That's a free plug. I don't get any promotional consideration for mentioning his name, and I don't get any kickback for anyone I may refer to him, Uh, just to put it right out there. uh, He's a good guy, and he's really, really good with Medi-Cal planning, which is really what this question is about. Okay, so now here uh, someone's asked the question, Uh, Someone out of Fremont, California, says, Our mother recently passed away. We thought we had placed some stocks in a brokerage account in her trust. It appears that was never done by the brokerage. Well, I don't know if it was the brokerage company's responsibility to do that. Uh, If they were directed to do that and the mother signed paperwork to that effect, then it should be in there. If the mother never signed paperwork directing them to do that, then it wasn't done. So the question is here, is there a way other than the Hegstat petition to solve this problem, or can we file this ourselves? We've already paid an attorney for a lot of services. Well, I don't know what they've paid for, maybe uh, trust administration services, and that's going to be a separate line item, typically, than a Hegstat petition. What they're talking about with a Hegstat petition, which, by the way, 
I would not recommend you try to file something like that on your own. If it's not prepared properly, if there's information missing, in certain cases, if you haven't given proper notice to the right people that the law requires us to read the notice, it's just going to be flat out denied by a judge who may have you start over again or you may have to end up going through the whole probate process. A Hegstat petition is a court petition in the probate court, typically in the county where someone lived and died uh, and had a trust. But in the case of working through my office, it can be um, someone who lived and died in another county in the, in the state and all of the interested parties involved agree that it's okay for me to handle it for them um, in uh, San Mateo County, which is where I actually do those. So the purpose of a Hegstat petition is to declare that um, is to declare that property that was in somebody's name when they died, or property that was payable to their estate after death, such as life insurance with no named beneficiary, or a retirement plan with no living beneficiary, well, that that property is going to be turned over to their trust to be administered by their trust rather than go through the entire probate process. Um, so a Hegstat petition is a way to quickly solve the problem of loose property. That's real estate, bank accounts, brokerage accounts, all kinds of things, uh, even as I have found in the last year, uh, racehorses, um, boxes at raceways, you know, where they, the horse tracks where people own a box there. All kinds of loose assets can be turned over to a trust without going through the entire long, expensive, completely public probate process that a lot of people will have to rely on. So when I come back after the break for the final segment of the show today, um, I plan on spending time talking about um, Hegstat petitions and trust modification petitions, uh, both of which I do out of my office. I have um, three new petitions that I have brought in this week um, that are uh, Hegstat petitions, and they're from all over the state. Uh, and I'll explain in more detail what those are. If you've been listening for a number of months, you've heard this before. If you're just tuning in for the first time, this will be a brand new thing for you. So, when we come back after this final break of the show today, I'm going to give a little discussion of Hegstat petitions and trust modification petitions in order to bring everybody up to speed. So, this is Attorney Bob Bergman, host of Plan Your Estate Radio, and I will be back with you after this short commercial break. Now, back to Plan Your Estate Radio. Once again, your host, estate planning trust and probate law specialist, attorney Bob Bergman. So welcome back, everyone. This is the final segment of my show today. Attorney Bob Bergman broadcasting from my office in San Jose, uh, which is open at this time. For those of you who are wondering, yes, I am open. I've had uh, two appointments this week that were live appointments with uh, everyone wearing masks and social distancing. So uh, I do take appointments in my office. Uh, we just make sure we're careful about what we do. But um, I find it's a lot easier 
to meet with people in person than to meet with them with uh, some kind of Zoom-type meeting. But uh, again, you have that option if you want to consult with me to either do it uh, in person or do it through a Zoom-type meeting. And um, I am open to doing it uh, both different ways. Now, before the break, I started talking about Hegstat petitions, so I'm going to take the balance of the show today and talk about Hegstat petitions and also talk about trust modification petitions. Now, both types of petitions have to do with there being a trust, typically an irrevocable trust, either a trust that was created as an irrevocable trust from the beginning or a trust that has become irrevocable, typically because of the death of the person who created the trust. A trust modification petition will typically take um, an irrevocable trust and the parties involved with that trust, who could be a surviving spouse um, or the children, uh, all of the beneficiaries, they look at the trust and for whatever reason, they say, this trust does not work the way it's currently written. We need to make some changes to it. And uh, we realize that the only way we can make those changes now uh, is by going through the court to request the changes to be made. Common reasons to make changes to a trust that is irrevocable. Um, Many trusts were set up years ago by married couples that required that the assets of the trust be divided into two shares when one spouse dies, one share being the surviving spouse's share of the property, which would then go into a survivor's trust, which is revocable, which means the survivor can change whatever they want with it, and then the other half typically going into a trust called a bypass trust, which was an irrevocable trust set up to provide income and additional monies as needed to take care of the surviving spouse. Problem with those types of trusts is when you set up a bypass trust, any assets that go in there, like real estate, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, things like that, they get their value fixed for income tax purposes at the time the first spouse died. So if they go into that bypass trust later on when the surviving spouse passes away eventually, the assets in the bypass trust, if they went up in value a lot over the years, that increased value is subject to capital gains income tax if those assets are sold after the surviving spouse died. So that's a very common reason we might go in and request that there not be the requirement to create a bypass trust so that everything actually goes to the surviving spouse. I've done this type of petition also to add in provisions for a beneficiary uh, who is now disabled to modify their share so that it goes into a supplemental needs trust to care for them instead of directly to them because going directly to them would cause the loss of benefits or maybe the future loss of benefits because of a disability. Um, A trust like this, trust can be modified for a lot of different reasons, but those are probably the most common ones right there. 
That type of modification typically proceeds under a section of the probate code, section 15403, possibly 15409 of the probate code. Uh, most of the uh, ones that I do are 15403. The Hegstat petition, I already covered a little briefly in the last segment. Uh, the most common reason for a Hegstat petition is that somebody had their residence, they had it in their trust, they took it out of their trust to refinance the property and neglected to put it back in. As I described that, that's like having a toy box and you have a toy in there, you take it out to play with it, you leave it on the floor, and then you die. Instead of putting it back in the box, it's still left on the floor. So the Hextap petition under probate code section 850, 850, that's used to get those loose assets, those loose toys, if you will, back off the floor and get them into the trust so they can be distributed according to the terms of the trust. And that's a, a brief summary of trust modification and Hegstep petitions. And I do several of those every year. I'm working on uh, three or four of those right now, even as I speak. So next week, we'll be coming back with more Plan Your State Radio. I hope you join me for the show next week. We do have podcasts at kdow.biz.biz. Look for Plan Your State Radio. You can download podcasts of this show and many shows from the past couple of years. Looking forward to talking with you again next Friday, starting at 2 o'clock. This is Bob Bergman, Plan Your State Radio, and I will talk with you next week. Have a great weekend. been listening to plan your estate radio with estate planning attorney bob bergman for more information on today's program or to schedule a consultation visit lawbob.com where you'll also find information on his upcoming estate planning seminars l-a-w-b-o-b lawbob.com or call his office in san jose 408-247-0444 that's 408-247-0444 and be sure to tune in next week for more plan your estate radio Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of this station and are for informational purposes only and should not be construed to be legal, financial, or tax advice. Seek appropriate legal advice regarding your particular situation. Attorney Bob Bergman does not offer any guarantees with regard to the outcome of your legal matter. Prior results in other cases do not guarantee a similar outcome in your case. All rights reserved.